Bill Nye, the science guy. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so uh, we can be in fellowship and ready to study the word. So after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's just so such a tremendous thing for us to watch this kind of a debate, to see the use of technology and to recognize that uh, could be hundreds of thousands of people are watching and will have the opportunity to watch. And because of the nature of this debate, perhaps a number of people who are sitting on the fence, a number of individuals who may not be saved, who may need to hear the gospel, have heard the gospel already in this presentation and we'll hear it again. We continue to pray for Ken Ham and his presentation that he might be uh, focused, that he might be um, mentally flexible in response to statements made by uh, Bill Nye and that he might faithfully represent your word and represent the truth. Father, we continue to pray for us too as believers that we might have the courage to stand up for the truth of your word in a, in a society that is consistently moving away from your word, consistently hostile to biblical Christianity. And often that is uh, dangerous for us because it might put our jobs in jeopardy. It might put uh, our social standing. It might may put any number of things in jeopardy. Yet nevertheless, we need to be vocal, uh, um, vocal defenders of your word under the right place, the right time, under the right conditions. And we need wisdom to do that. Father, we pray as we study your word this evening that we might be challenged again by the uh, truth of your word and be encouraged by your faithfulness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me get, make sure I'm set up here for our study. Let's turn in to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. But before we get started, I said I would give a little report on the trip to Kiev. Uh, we do have a Dean Bible Ministries Facebook page. I posted a number of things on that. Some of you I know found it. Uh, others of you didn't know it was there. But that's a place I've got some pictures I posted there on the uh, students. The student body this year, there were eight students in the class. Uh, that's down about four or five from normal. It's just like so many other areas within a biblical uh, ministry. Sometimes it's hard to find people who really want to study the Bible and go forward. But Jim Meyer's ministry has done a tremendous job over the 15, 14 or 15 years that Jim, since Jim started the Word of God Bible Institute. And from that very first class, and I was pleased to see three or four people from the first two or three classes come back and drift through one day or another just to come by and say hi, and to see how many of them are out uh, somewhere involved in a significant ministry. There are um, probably, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know of at least seven or eight men who have uh, significant ministries as pastors. Of course, most of you have met Eager Smolyar, or Eager has, was, and his wife were here a couple of times for the Chafer Conference five or six years ago. Uh, Eager translated for me the first Sunday I was there when I spoke at the, what is called the Christmas Church, which is the largest uh, Baptist church, largest church in, uh, in Jatomer, 
which is a city of about five or six hundred thousand, located about 120 miles west of of, of Kiev. And uh, Eager is sort of an assistant pastor there. The pastor's name is Daniel, and Pastor Daniel is about 83 years old, and he is, uh, you know, when he's a little bitty guy, just a, a real small framed short guy. And yet when I'm with him, I always feel a little bit overwhelmed because this is a guy who was imprisoned by the Soviets numerous times and tortured for his faith, and yet he would always come back and he continued to have a small underground church in Ukraine uh, throughout that period. And then this church, which had been originally built as a Lutheran church, was... Um, uh, rebuilt. I mean, during the Soviet period, it was used initially under the communists as a barn. They did that with a lot of churches. You know, the animals defecating on the floor was a symbol of what they thought about churches and Christianity in general. But during the 60s under Khrushchev, they usually got converted into gymnasiums or something a little more useful than a barn. And then uh, by the time that you had the breakup of the Soviet Union, you had a number of Western Christian organizations who uh, sent a lot of money to different churches and different organizations to re- renovate and rebuild at least some of these more historic churches. This church had been built about 1900, I think, or 1911, somewhere in there, as a as a Lutheran church, and it's been renovated by uh, some, uh, uh, I think, a Dutch Reformed organization. Uh, out of Holland, poured a lot of, gave them a lot of money. They built an education building. They have a private school and a, a really great facility. And they usually run about, um, probably around three to four hundred people there on Sunday. And I don't know if you could tell from the video because it was from the back of the congregation, but I was impressed with how many young people were in that audience. And I'm talking about te- from teenagers to twenty somethings. Uh, that were in that church. Of course, what most people comment on is the fact that as they looked down, they could see that they still had their fur hats on and their heavy coats and fur coats in the middle of church because the temperature inside that building with the extremely high ceiling and the temperature outside of 15 degrees, temperature was only about 30 degrees or so warmer inside the church. So first time, though, that I've spoken there when I didn't speak in my, in my uh, overcoat. Now, the second Sunday I was there, I spoke at Jim Myers Church, which meets in a conference room at a hotel, the Bratislava Hotel, and I did put my overcoat back on before I got up to preach because it was really bloody cold in there. I mean, it was down to like, I don't know, it had to be just above freezing inside. You could almost see your breath. It was cold in that room. So um, it's life is always fun on the mission field. But the, the the people in the church are so responsive to the teaching of the word, and the people, the students were so responsive, and there was a really good group of students. You can tell by their questions, and it was a, seemed like a more mature group. I've had groups there that where there were two or three that were a little younger, and you could tell from their questions that they're a little bit argumentative, and they're trying to work through and understand different things. And some of them, and part of this is sort of a uh, Russian-Ukrainian cultural thing. Uh, Russian sounds a lot like German. I mean, if you're going to say romantic things to a woman, the languages you would not use are Russian or German. 
They just, no matter how nice and sweet and tender you might be, it just sounds like you're barking orders or arguing with somebody. And it took me a while to understand that. Um, the first two or three years I was there, you start getting students ask questions, and it sounds like they're just really uh, aggressively attacking you. And they're not. They're just asking. That's just the tone of the language. So that, those kinds of things are cultural. But this, this group seemed a little more um, uh, mature, uh, a little more uh, open, and um, so they, they're, they're going to be a good group. I would say out of each class that has graduated over the last 14 years, there are one or two that have really done well in ministry, and I think that's, that's pretty exceptional that you, you never know where they're going to go, what they're going to do. Some of them, there are some ladies who are in every class, and some of them have worked for Jim for many years. Uh, um, uh, Nina, um, can't pronounce her last name, uh, who is the administrator for the school, is, a br- is brilliant in languages and teaches Hebrew. And she was... Um, in fact, I got her connected with the Jewish Federation for Israel when I was there three years ago, and she has been studying modern Hebrew as well as biblical Hebrew, and last year they asked her to teach modern conversational Hebrew to their kindergartners, to these little Jewish kids, and she got a scholarship to go to an ulpan, which is a language school in Jerusalem, to study for five weeks last summer. So this has given her great opportunities to have a ministry in the in the Jewish community as well as to improve her understanding of uh, Hebrew. And I am incredibly impressed with the language skills that these students come up come out with at the end of just two years. So they do a, Jim does a great job of training people. He accomplishes his mission. So we need to keep them in, in a lot of prayer. Now a lot of people have asked about the political situation there, and there's some parallels to what's going on here, but it's a much more extreme situation there. Now that's hard for some people here to really understand and accept. And the reality is, is that, that we are a lot, we're looking at a culture there that has had 80 years of deeply embedded corruption under the Soviets that came after about 500 years of profound corruption under the SARS. So corruption is, is, it's generational, it's, it's deep, it's profound, and it's been there for five or six centuries. Uh, we have corruption in this country, but it is not that deeply embedded. We have a tremendous number of biblical Christians and a, n- a number of, of institutions and ideas in this country and a body of laws and constitutions such as it may be treated today that's still built upon a Christian establishment foundation, none of which they have. They don't have the 500-year, uh, you know, they don't have like two, like we have two or 300 years of a solid Christian tradition that informed their institutions and their framework. They don't have uh, a, a culture that appreciates and understands, at least in terms of, of upper echelons of business and, and politics, uh, a non-corruption. Now, we have a lot of, I think we have a lot of corruption in this country. I'm not ignoring that. But it's nothing like what it is over in the former uh, Soviet countries. 
and what it is in Ukraine. And for those who may not remember all of this, in 2004, they had a presidential election, and the people revolted against the results. The current president, Yanukovych, was elected in a fraudulent election, and so they had a revolt. Like now, it's a peaceful demonstration. Everybody went down to Maidan, which is the uh, main square in Kiev, and camped out. And there were uh, tens of thousands of people who camped out there for several weeks. They got the results of the election overturned. And his opponent, um, what's his name, Yanukovych and Yushchenko, Yushchenko was elected. And, um, and then after him, the other major party was the uh, blonde Ukrainian Barbie, uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, and she came along. And the trouble is, their, their, their quote, conservative, uh, pro-Ukrainian uh, politics had a lot of flaws in it, and a lot of flaws in it, and a lot of corruption. And a lot of things went bad in the economy, and they made a lot of bad decisions, and they didn't produce in terms of any kind of serious reformations in Kiev because their foundation is false. So when they had the last presidential election four or five years ago, they the country went for Yanukovych. If, if brand X doesn't work for you, let's go to brand Y. So they went to brand Y with Yanukovych, and uh, he's taken them back towards Mother Russia, and they don't want that, so that's produced... Uh, when he made it really clear this last November and broke this uh, treaty or failed to sign this treaty with EU and started moving back towards uh, Putin and uh, and Russia, that's what's co- what caused this demonstration because Ukrainians inherently uh, dislike and despise the Russians. Half of Ukraine is is ethnic Ukrainian. A lot of Eastern Ukraine is ethnic Russian. They have sympathies towards Russia. The, probably half to maybe two-thirds of the country is is uh, more pro-European pro, uh, because they're, they're ethnic Ukrainians. So this causes a lot of problems with, within the country. So when you look at this and you see people who are espousing pro-democracy ideas and pro-free market ideas, you have to ask the question, how do, how well do they really understand that? And is there a, a, uh, a, an intellectual climate in Ukraine to appreciate that? And there isn't. So what you end up with is you're choosing, uh, brand X or brand Y, both of which represent different forms of evil in the cosmic system. And this is the same kind of problem we can slip into in this country as well. And because once you lose a biblical foundation for your value system, then your value system is based on preference. It's based on power or or, or some other changing reality. It's not based on the immutable uh, realities of the Word of God and the character of God. And so this is this is one of the issues you get with people. Yes, there are a lot of ideas and values that they may espouse, but what we're seeing is a, a war between basically two sides of the cosmic system, and that's why it doesn't actually work out in the in the end game unless there is a spiritual solution 
the politic, the correct political solution won't work. And I say it that way because too often I hear people say that the only solution that works is a spiritual solution. But the spiritual solution doesn't operate in a vacuum. Think about what happened in the American War for Independence. There was a spiritual biblical foundation, but it functioned as the, as, as the foundation and the background for a political solution. Okay? You have both. But a political solution that operates apart from or in contradiction to the spiritual realities is not going to work. And that's too often, and that, that's, I think that's where we're headed in this country. We have too many people who somehow think that if we just change political parties or if we just change the person in power, we're going to change things. But we've been on the same trajectory of decline for the last hundred years in this country. And it's because we have been on the same spiritual negative trajectory for the last hundred years in this country. And no matter what or how accurate the, a political solution might be, if it's divorced from the, from a spiritual shift, it won't work because the political, the correct political solution has to be empowered and strengthened by the correct spiritual Perspective, And if you don't have the right spiritual perspective, no matter how right or correct the political perspective might be, it's only going to be temporary. It's, it may change things a little bit for a year or two, but it doesn't have the roots, the foundation that it needs to have a long-term foundation. And political decisions don't lead to spiritual shifts. It's spiritual shifts that lead to political shifts. And people get that backwards a lot, think that if we can just change the political environment, we can then have a better opportunity for the, for, for the spiritual truth and proclamation of the gospel. But it, it works the other way around, and that's why we have to pray for uh, the opportunities to present the gospel and for responsive uh, hearers and for the ability to uh, make our case uh, as as best we can, and that goes back to this debate. This is a great opportunity to make a biblical case for one aspect of Christianity. Okay, let's look at Acts 28. We're getting close to the end of Acts. We're, we've, we're on the last chapter, and we can almost see the end, but we're not going to get there tonight. Tonight what I want to do is finish up with Paul's, what some might call, his fourth missionary journey, the one that was financed by the Roman Empire, uh, taking him for his trial in Rome. Uh, he's gone through his uh, two years of incarceration in Caesarea, more like house arrest, and now he is being transported to Rome, and this has been a journey that has taken about <clears throat> four months, and yet it started at the beginning of chapter 27, we had 44 verses describing that in uh, chapter 27, and uh, we covered the first uh, 10 verses or so in chapter 28. At the end of the last class, I'm not, I wasn't sure how much I covered right at the end last time, so I wanted to go back to about verse 7 and just pick up the, the end there, and then we'll go through uh, <clears throat> probably through verse 16 uh, today, because this takes us up to the end of the of the journey. In verse seven, 
Luke tells us in that region, that is, they're now in Malta. Here's the map here. They left from Crete. They were blown uh, kind of off course at the mercy of the winds until they finally had their shipwreck and were washed up on Malta. God in his sovereignty oversaw the chaos of the situation so that no life was lost even though the ship was lost. Now, it's the time their shipwrecked is in November, and the winds are bad, the weather's bad, it's winter, all the sailing is shut down until about mid, uh, mid-February. And so they are on the island of Malta, and here is a map of Malta, and this is the bay that is uh, the traditional location of the shipwreck, and it is called St. Paul's Bay. And so while they are there, they are welcomed by the inhabitants of Malta, and uh, there's one of the leading citizens there. Possibly he was a procurator, although he's not identified by Luke as such. And his name is Publius. And what's interesting is his full name is not given. His name is Publius, and he welcomed those who were uh, shipwrecked and entertained them, Luke tells, tells us, for three days. It happens in verse 8 that the father of Publius was sick of a fever and dysentery. Now, there was a form of dysentery on Malta that was known as a result of certain bacteria that was in the goat's milk. And so this could uh, bother somebody for as little as three or four months to two or three years. So he is sick from this dysentery. And we're told that Paul went into him and prayed and he laid his hands on him and healed him. This is language that is typical of the Gospels. Paul prayed the idea of laying hands on someone is not to convey some sort of mystical power, but to indicate an identification with the person who is praying and the person they are praying for. It's the same kind of thing that we see in an ordination service where you lay hands, the pastors will lay hands on the new pastor that is being ordained, and it is a visual symbol of identification. So this is what is going on, uh, the reason Paul lays hands on him and he heals him. Now this is a sign, again, of his apostleship. In 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, Paul writes to the Corinthians in his second epistle to them, Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. This was part of the credentials of a Messiah, uh, I mean, of the, uh, of, of the apostles who were representing the Messiah, that they too performed miracles and signs and wonders. It was their credentials. It identified them. It got people's attention, but it's also associated with uh, the the ministry of Jesus Christ. So they are representatives of Jesus Christ, and so they perform these kinds of healing miracles. So this is what Paul is doing here. We still see healing then this late into the apostolic period. This is roughly 60 A.D., but this is probably the last time historically that we uh, see a positive reference to healing in the apostolic period. Uh, Paul will write from, uh, uh, from prison in Rome just about a year or so later when he writes to the church at Philippi, and he talks about Trophimus, 
He talks about others. He talks about Timothy later on. And in these epistles, there's no reference to any kind of miraculous healing. There's reference to uh, illnesses that these individuals had, but not any reference to miraculous healing. So the, these sign gifts are beginning to uh, die out, transition out towards the end of this period. Verse 9, so when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Luke draws a lot of parallels like this to events that happened in the life of Christ. Uh, I, I went through it a little bit when we were going through Paul's, the opposition to Paul by the Jewish community in Jerusalem in the temple and comparing that and the trial of Paul uh, by the Jews and in, in, um, in the opposition and trial uh, when Paul was in Jerusalem to the opposition of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Luke is doing is connecting these two that just as Jesus was rejected and suffered, he warned his disciples that they too would be rejected and suffer in the same way. And so we see this parallel with Paul, uh, not only in terms of the rejection and suffering, but also in terms of imitating the ministry of Christ as his representative, as an apostle. So there were many that were that were healed. Verse 10 we read, They also honored us in many ways. And the word honored here is a, the a Greek word teme, which also communicates not just giving somebody respect, but also providing gifts and perhaps financing. So the people took care of them. They provided them with food. They provided them with lodging. Uh, they took care of them. Uh, the word is also used in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 in relationship to the pay of, a, of elders, that an elder who uh, teaches well or rules well is worthy of double honor. And that doesn't mean just double respect. That is Paul's way of saying they should get double the salary because they are serving the Lord in a very significant way. So that's what it means when he says they honored us. They were taking care of them in terms of food, in terms of lodging, and perhaps in terms of monetary gifts. Verse 11 now, we come to uh, the last part of the voyage. After three months... So now that brings us to February, the second week in February of the year 60. We sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. So from 11 to 16, basically we're going to get a travelogue. Uh, Luke is going to tell us they went from this point to this point, and then they stayed there a day or two days or three days, and then they went to the next point, the next point, and he fills in some specific detail. Now, this is important to note things like this because, number one, we have a human author who is present, and this shows us that, that he is writing a certain amount of detail here to give us the sense that he is actually there. He is writing. He's writing an eyewitness account. He's not just speaking in generalities, using his imagination about what a voyage would be like, but he was actually there, and so he can fill in with these details. Now, the other question we should ask is why does God the Holy Spirit care that we know these details? Because if we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture 
and the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, then everything that is revealed in Scripture has a point and a purpose. And so we ought to ask the question, why is it important for us spiritually to know these kinds of details? Now, you may think this is boring and this isn't important and this doesn't relate to your life, but then you're wrong. It, it, it's details like this that enhance our respect and, and trust in the Word of God, that this isn't just something written uh, by someone who's making it up. It indicates a firsthand account. It indicates an eyewitness account. And there are other little aspects of these details that come out that, that may be a little bit uh, uh, amusing. But b- before we get into that, I want to set the stage again for why this is important overall. Earlier in Acts, God had made two promises to, to Paul. He had said that he was a chosen vessel to take his name before Gentiles, kings, as well as the children of Israel. And that occurred right after Paul's salvation. In Acts 23.11, the Lord appeared to him uh, at night and told him that he would also bear witness of him in Rome. These were specific promises that God gave Paul. In spite of all of the chaos and in spite of all the things that might create uncertainty in our minds as to whether or not God was still paying attention, Paul had a promise from God that he would end up in Rome and he could rely upon that and he could trust in that. And so God is working out his plan. He's in charge And the same thing is true for each of us. God is just as much in charge of the details of our lives as the details of the Apostle Paul, no matter how chaotic, how disruptive, how uh, out of control things may appear to us. And so God is working in our lives to teach us to trust in him. So now let's look at, at what's going on here in the text. So after three months... This is in February. Note the subject of the verb is a first-person plural pronoun, we, indicating Luke is still with Paul, and Aristarchus, we assume, is still with Paul. We sailed in an Alexandrian ship. This is just like the previous ship. These Alexandrian ships would uh, travel the routes in the Mediterranean, taking grain from Egypt and taking it to other other ports throughout the Roman uh, Empire. And then Luke kind of with a little tongue-in-cheek, just a little irony or sarcasm makes the next observation. He says, whose figurehead was the twin brothers. Now, why in the world would that be included in the text of Scripture? Who are the twin brothers? The twin brothers were known in the, by the Greek uh, noun Dioscurius. They're Castor and Pollux, the twin sons of Zeus and the human mother Leda. They are known as the Gemini twins, and they are in the zodiac. And there is a uh, um, constellation in the in the sky related to um, uh, the Gemini twins. There were a number of statues of them in the ancient world. But what made them significant was they were the patron gods of sailors to provide protection. And so Luke sort of tongue-in-cheek makes the observation here that 
that Julius, who's the centurion in charge, made sure he added a little extra protection for them on this route so that the figurehead on the, on the ship was uh, uh, Castor and Pollux. He, want, he just basically to convert it into our terminology, he would say he went out and got a, got a new rabbit's foot to make sure we would get there safely. So he's poking a little fun at um, at <clears throat> the fact that they were on this a ship with this figurehead on it. So this ship had also wintered at um, Malta, and they left from there, and I want to go back to our map slide here so you, we can follow the route. They left Malta and headed north to Syracuse. Now, from my study, I have seen two or three different measurements uh, or distance offered here that this was about 60 to, one writer says, about 90 miles. So roughly it's about 70 to 80 miles, I guess, on the average to Syracuse, which is the main port of Sicily. And when they arrived there, they stayed for three days. Now, uh, Luke doesn't tell us why they stayed there for three days, but there are any number of reasons that they stayed there for three days. They could have stayed there to offload cargo or to load cargo, but in light of the fact that it's still rather early in the travel season, they were probably waiting on the winds to change and to get favorable winds to continue to sail north. Now, uh, Syracuse was a main port there. What's interesting is what's not said here. When we get to the next uh, when we get to uh, Paul's final destiny at um, uh, Puteoli, there's a church there. And whenever there's a group of Christians or Jews present, Paul always seems to find them and talk about them. Nothing like that is said about the stop, uh, the stop in Syracuse. Syracuse was the capital of Sicily at this time. Sicily was colonized by the Greeks, uh, three or four hundred years earlier and was a center of Greek culture, more Greek than Latin, and um, uh, was on the uh, course for the Straits of uh, Messina. Messina is located in the north uh, east tip of Sicily there. Those of you who are fans of uh, Patton, Remember that this is where he ha- he slipped up on Montgomery and slipped into Messina and had his troops already waiting there on parade when Montgomery finally made it there. Montgomery had the route uh, to take his army up the coast from Syracuse to Messina where uh, Patton cut across uh, to the north shore of Sicily and then cut back uh, to Messina and beat Montgomery to Messina. So that sort of puts it in a modern context for some of you. Uh, Cicero describes Syracuse as being a very beautiful city. It had two harbors, and it had been under Roman control for the previous uh, 200 uh, years or so. We're then told in verse 13 that... <clears throat> They left Syracuse. From there, Luke writes, we circled round and reached Regium. Now, if you have a New American Standard or other translation, it may not have circled around. That's in the New King James and the King James, and it is the, it's a better term than, uh, what you find in the NASB. NASB has a word periolantes, which means to cast loose or 
slip your anchor, but Peri Althantes has the idea of going around and is in the majority of manuscripts along with uh, three of the more ancient manuscripts, so that's a superior, much superior reading. So they left there and they headed up to Rigium, which is on the toe of the boot of Italy, and they had to wait there a day for the wind to shift to give them a strong south wind. Um, oh, wait a minute. First, they, yeah, they got to Regium. They had to have a strong south wind to make it through the Straits of Messina and then north. This is about 120. I read 120. I read 140 miles, so roughly 130 miles to Puteoli, which is where they would dock and finally uh, get off of the boat and set foot on dry land. Uh, the uh, total trip was somewhere around a um, little over 200 miles from Malta up to, uh, uh, or almost 300 miles up to Puteoli. So they made their way to Puteoli, which is on the Bay of Naples. It's eight miles from the modern, north of the modern uh, city of of Naples, roughly. What did I say earlier? Uh, I've read 180 to 200 miles from Regium to Puteoli, so it was a a rather long trip. Um, So it took them two days, so they had a strong wind that carried them there, and there they found uh, brethren, and here he's using the term brethren to speak of other believers. He will use the term brethren when he addresses the Jewish leaders of the synagogues in Rome in verse 17, but context indicates there that he's speaking ethnically, not spiritually. He's using brethren here to refer to um, to believers. They found uh, a church there. Obviously, it was not established by by Paul, this, these churches in, in Rome and here uh, predated the arrival of the Apostle Paul, and Peter hasn't been there yet either. So they were founded by others, probably other than the, any of the apostles, but some, uh, some converts had taken the gospel there, and these congregations had been established uh, some time before. They're welcomed by the brethren who provide lodging for them, provide food for them, and... Uh, have open arms and invite them to stay with them for a week. It is during this time that they are resting after this long voyage. They probably have to resupply. They, the uh, Julius, who is leading them, has to set up everything for their travel to Rome, which is another 130 miles or so, uh, and they have to provide for all the logistics for that. So it's a time of rest before they make the final part of the journey. During this time, Paul would have taught with the congregation. He would have communicated the gospel, but he's still under guard. So he has these, the Roman guards are with him, Roman soldiers are with him, and that, they continue to witness the behavior, the lifestyle of these Christians, and they continue to hear the gospel uh, and as it's presented by the Apostle Paul and continue to hear biblical teaching. So he continues to be a faithful witness to the gospel, which is part of his mission 
uh, as an apostle, and this is the mission Jesus gave the apostles back in Acts 1.8, that you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. We're now at the, at almost to Rome, where the gospel is being taken to the uttermost part of the earth. In the view of Luke, who's writing this, he's reaching the end of his story. His story is not about the Apostle Paul. It's not a biography on Peter and Paul. It is the story about how the Holy Spirit is taking the gospel from Jerusalem to the uttermost part of the earth. So we are almost there. In Acts 28.15, we read, and from there, after a week, they left, um, they left Puteoli and they began to walk along the Appian Way to Rome. And along the way, they are met by groups of believers who have come down from Rome. Now, think about this. Rome is about 120 to 140 miles away. So once they landed, messengers had to go from Puteoli to Rome to tell the believers in Rome that Paul had arrived. And then they have to come back. So they, they don't have enough time to make it all the way back to Puteoli before they leave, but they get at least close to halfway. And they met them at two stops along the way that were well-attested uh, traveler stops, uh, according to other uh, writers of the time, the uh, Appy Forum and the and the Three Inns, and they came along to uh, encourage Paul. Normally, this was a five-day walk uh, to Rome by either the Companion Way or the Appian Way. This was the shorter distance, and also they probably chose that because it would enter Rome from the south next to the Circus Maximus, which is in the area of Rome where most of the Jews lived. Now, the Jews had been expelled from Rome in approximately 50 A.D. as a result of riots that occurred in the Jewish community over a person that uh, Suetonius uh, writes as Crestos. He spelled it C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. And it is believed by most people that this was related to disputes in the Jewish community over Jesus Christ and his claims to be the Messiah. And so all the Jews were expelled from Rome in 50, and then they were allowed to come back in 54. So this is some six years later, and the Jewish population in Rome at this time was thought to be approximately uh, 40,000. And so uh, they would come into Rome along the Appian Way, uh, into the Jewish community, which at this time the preponderance of the, uh, of the of the Christians were still from a Jewish background. The market of Appius was some 43 miles southeast of Rome, and then the the three ends was 21 miles south of Rome. The forum at Appius had a reputation. Horace described it as full of boatmen and stingy tavern keepers. Uh, uh, Cicero also mentioned the uh, uh, three ends and uh, said that it was a common stop in the area. So these are well attested. So what we see again is the detail that 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 Luke gives us shows that anchors these these events 
in space-time history. It's not happening in some spiritual realm, but this happened uh, uh, in a particular place and a particular location, and this just reaffirms to us the historical accuracy uh, of the Scripture. So now we read in verse 16, Now when we came to Rome... The centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So he's going to rent his own quarters. The uh, Christian community in Rome supplied his uh, financial needs, his logistical needs, and he has an apartment where he is under house arrest, but he has... Uh, relative freedom there, and anyone can come and visit him. So God has been true to his promise that he would bring Paul to Rome. Now, what we learn from this uh, spiritually is an example of God's faithfulness. This has been a long, detailed episode that Luke has given us, but it's to remind us that God is true to his promise. And no matter how difficult things might appear, he is always faithful. So I thought we would end tonight by just a review of the doctrine of the faithfulness of God. In the Old Testament, we have a word for faithfulness that is related to the word amen. Amen, what we, how we usually pronounce it in English, is amen. And it is a verb that has a, a, a meaning related to belief, and in other forms, it relates to faithfulness. In some forms of the word, it was used to describe the foundation stone of the pillars of the Solomonic temple. So the core idea in the word has to do with stability. It has to do with that which doesn't shift or change, and so it has come to mean faithfulness. So aman as the verb means to uh, confirm something, to support it or uphold it, to be established or to be faithful. Uh, noun form, immune, means to be faithful or trusting. And another form, omain, means faithfulness, describes the adjective of faithfulness. In the New Testament, the adjective that is used for faithfulness is pistos, with an OS or omicron sigma at the end, indicating uh, the God is faithful or trustworthy. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our trust. We can depend upon him because he will never fail us. So the root idea in defining faithfulness is the idea of something that is firm, something that is stable, something that is unshaking, unshakable, or immovable. And this is the idea of faithfulness. God is immovable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we can always rely upon him. His faithfulness is related in the Old Testament to covenants. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God. Yahweh Elohim, he is God. He is Elohim, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy. Remember our study on mercy on Sunday morning? He keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his uh, commandments. The, his covenant faithfulness is usually expressed by the word uh, chesed, which indicates his loyal love. He is always loyal to his covenant. Psalm 36.5, we read, Your mercy, that's chesed again, your faithful loyal love, O Lord, is in the heavens, 
Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. This is a dramatic way of expressing the uh, the infinity of God's uh, faithfulness. He is, you can't measure it. It is boundless. It is unlimited. In Psalm 89.1, we read that this is a contemplation of Ethan the Ezraite. This probably indicates this was written after the um, after the exile, uh, someone who was a disciple of Ezra, who writes, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. And then, of course, one of our favorite verses, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the Lord's, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions or his mercy, his compassions fail not. Uh, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. A great couple of verses to memorize and to remind yourself of when you're going through times of difficulty. The New Testament states at least four times, <clears throat> or at least three times, that God is faithful. There are other ways in which that idea is expressed, but these straight-out statements that God is faithful are found in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This relates to the doctrine of eternal security, that God is going to complete what he began. He is faithful. He will complete the process of salvation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that God is faithful in the midst of trials and difficulty, that there is no, and this is another great verse to memorize, there is no temptation taken you except as is common to man, but God is faithful. In contrast to the things that happen in life, all of the crazy things, all the bad things, all the horrors we face, and and the absolute uh, reality of change in our life, God is unchanging. God is faithful, and he will not allow us to be tested beyond our ability. Now, that doesn't mean he removes it, but he's provided the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to enable us to face any testing. And so he will, with the temptation, make a way to not, when it says make a way to escape, that is a way of survival, that we may bear it, not that we may avoid it. So we still stay in and under the testing. Second uh, Corinthians one eighteen, we read again. But God, but as God is faithful, our word to you was yes and no. And another verse that clearly states God's faithfulness is First John one nine, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful. So again, that would be a fourth clear statement of God's faithfulness in the New Testament. So in terms of a definition. Divine faithfulness is God's perfect consistency with his character and promises. When he says it, he will do it. He may not do it like we think he'll do it or in the time that he'll do it, but God is going to fulfill his promise perfectly. His faithfulness is always related to other aspects of his character, to his righteousness, to his justice, to his love, and to truth. Those four specifically are consistently related to God's faithfulness. And so that means that he's the only dependable reality. Your money's not dependable. Your job's not dependable. Your spouse isn't dependable. Your children aren't dependable. Your parents aren't dependable. Your friends aren't dependable. 
I hate to tell you this, but your dog and your cat aren't dependable. Only God is dependable. And he will never leave us or forsake us. He's eternal. We'll never lose him. He'll never lose us. And so we can always depend upon him. He's always faithful to his promises. This, that, all of that was just definition. This is second point. He's faithful to his promises. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now that's another statement of God's faithfulness. He who promised is God is faithful. He will always fulfill his promises. So we need to learn the faith rest drill. We need to learn to mix our faith with the promise of God in his word. He's faithful to us. The third point, he's faithful to us when we fail. First John 1 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins every single time, even when it's the 592nd, 343rd time that we've committed that same sin this year. God is faithful, and he's not going to tap his fingers and say, you know, I'm really tired of hearing this in your confession. Not only that, in his omniscient, he knows he's going to hear it about 175, 832,000 more times. So he'll take care of things, so... Um, God is faithful. He's faithful to us when we fail. Now, this is a great series of verses. This is a <clears throat> confusing to some people, but Paul quotes this in 2 Timothy 2 related to the faithfulness of God in terms of the faithfulness of his word. It's a faithful saying, something we can believe in. For if we died with him, first-class condition, if we died with him, if we trusted in Christ, we died with him, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Result, we shall live with him. We can count on it. If we trusted Christ as Savior, we died with him in terms of our identification with his death, burial, and resurrection, baptism by the Holy Spirit. Result, we'll live with him. Second verse, if we endure, that is, if we stick with it, if we persevere through the Christian way of life, we'll end up reigning with him. There's a future of rewards will rule with the Lord Jesus Christ in the eternal kingdom. But in contrast, if we deny him, that is, if we fail, if we don't endure, he will deny us. Now, he's not going to deny us salvation. He will deny us rewards. That's the context in the parallel. What we have here is an antithetical parallel between the first, the first hypothetical clause and the second. The first one says, if we endure, we reign. second one is saying, if we don't endure, we won't. It's talking about reigning and rewards in that verse. Verse 13 makes it clear. If we're faithless, see, denying him is one thing. Being faithless is similar. But if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He's still faithful in saving us because he can't go back on his word. But we may lose rewards if we have failed. Fourth point, a verse I've already pointed out, God's faithful to us in testing. He is going to, he's in control of the situation. So when we hit a test, whether it's something that's a result of a decision of ours or something that just blew into our lives, no matter how disruptive it is, we under, must understand that God is in charge. It may surprise us, but it didn't surprise him. 
And so he's going to provide the solution for us, and it's an opportunity for us to test him. I mean, to trust him. Not to test him, to trust him. Fifth point, God's faithfulness is a divine protection for the believer in times of trouble. He is our rock, he's our shield, he's our buckler, he's our strong tower. Those are just some of the metaphors that are used. In Psalm 91.4, it's the idea of a of an eagle, a bird, protecting its young. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. It can, the truth of God's word can protect you because it's backed by the integrity of God and his faithfulness. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to be reminded of your faithfulness and Paul's life as you brought him through the opposition, the riots, you brought him through the imprisonments, the shipwreck, and you brought him to the destiny of your promise, which was Rome. And not only that, but he is going to go on from Rome to continue at least another four or five years of of ministry. Father, the lesson we need to learn is that you're faithful in the same way in our life. You will provide for us, and no matter what the vicissitudes of life may be, no matter how uh, horrible, no matter how oppressive, disruptive uh, things might appear, you're in control and you will provide for us and take care of us along the way. Our responsibility is to trust you. And we pray that you would encourage us with this example in Christ's name. Amen.